and welcome to the Conscious Diva podcast. I'm Tatiana Wright. Joining me today is my friend Tracy Jennings Hill. I asked Tracy to speak with me firstly about her experience as an African-American woman in the U.S. Air Force and secondly about her spiritual practice, yoga, and how she utilized her practice to heal herself from a devastating experience. Tracy is also the founder of Live Your Yoga, a studio in Atlanta, Georgia, where she works with surviving spouses of active duty military members, teaching them yogic life skills. Welcome, Tracy, and thank you for being here today. Namaste. Namaste. Thank you for having me. I'm so excited to be in this space with you. Well, you're welcome. Thank you. Well, as we were just saying, I, I really would love to just open this with um, having you talk about your experience as an African-American woman in the U.S. Air Force. We all are familiar with the image of Top Gun, right? Right. And I think that's a really a stigma that most people think of when you say Air Force. What was the, what was the draw? Why did you want to enter the Air Force? Ooh, that's a story in itself. Um, my my father actually he actually was a signal officer in the army air force okay so which was years ago and um when i got ready to graduate from high school i wasn't sure exactly what i wanted to do and my dad actually introduced me to the army national guard well my, i actually started in the army national guard and then came back home and um decided i wanted to go active duty and that's how i ended up in the air force because the air force recruiter had a better convincing pitch at the time. <laughs> and so... Um, and what, what year was this? Or what, what decade? Oh, uh, 1980. I actually went in, in 1980, which is really, really interesting. Because if you think about it, it was post-Vietnam era. Not a lot of women. Uh, not a lot of women. And of course, then, of course, the fact that I was, I'm, I'm Black. So that's another aspect that was too. And the job that I was given was a very male-dominant job. So there were a lot of different um, aspects to moving into the Air Force at that time that were a lot different. Um, I'm reminded of a human relations course that I had to take, you know, we all had to take. And if you think of it from the African-American or Black perspective, there were, uh, it was a course that we all had to take and there were 75 of us in this class. There were only three Black people. And it was so interesting the way the guy, the, the instructor opened it up. He said, so how many of you Caucasian people have ever seen uh -huh, a black person in person? This was back in 1980, okay? And what state so, is it in? Um, this was in uh, San Antonio, Texas. Um, that's, where, that's where I was. And so it was so interesting because the majority of the white people that were there, or the Caucasian, my Caucasian brothers and sisters, most of them raised their hand because they had never really seen a black person in person. And that was powerful. You know, when you start to think about all of this aspect of it, you start to think about um, how uh, prevalent, you think it's, you're in the 20th century. Yeah. And in my world, I grew up, I was one of seven uh, blacks out of 350 of, in my graduating high school class. So from a racial standpoint, it was a lot different. So Breaking down the barriers was, was very, very, uh, I think, prevalent. Um, and a part of the fiber of who I am now, you know, the things that I experienced as a woman. Um, and then being uh, enlisted in the Air Force. Um, I did finish my degree. I had an opportunity to become an officer, but I decided I didn't want to do that because I didn't want to stay that long. Um, but I did retire with 20 years. So it was a very huge um, 
part of who I am. So it gave me a lot of the things because I'm kind of like a wildflower, obviously. Um, now I have locks and tattoos and, and all that kind of stuff. But back then, I, I, you know, my energy needed the structure. Um, there were disadvantages and there were advantages, you know. Um, um, I worked with a lot of different people from different countries to include, you know, the Netherlands, Germany, Italy. Uh, was, I was stationed in a lot of, of amazing countries, which was, I think, the real bonus. Being here in the U.S., um, it was challenging. It was, it was actually challenging because I was in, first place I was stationed in was Biloxi, uh, Mississippi, which, wow. uh, yeah. And then one of my first duty stations was in Panama City, Florida. And even then, it's still considered like lower Alabama. Mm. So there were a lot of racial overtones being in that area of the United States back in those days. Did they ask you uh, or did they say, hey, we're stationing you here. How do you feel? Or was it just sort of your, this is, this is the luck of the draw. This is where you're going. This is where you're going. Yeah. Wow. Yeah. Here's another fun fact too. Um, I was stationed in Iceland um, back in 1986 to 87. And uh, African-Americans were not allowed to be stationed there all the way up until 1980. They were banned because the Icelandic government did not want intermingling of races. What? Are you serious? I had no idea. Yeah. Oh my God. So how were you received as one of the first African-Americans and a woman to be living there and to be serving? It was interesting because I was on a, we were at a remote radar site. So whenever we would go, we could go into town periodically, but it wasn't uh, a normal thing. But it was very interesting because people would just stare. They would just constantly stare. And it was, and that was unsettling to me because of where I came from you know, and where I, uh, how I grew up. Um, the other part too is uh, there were, I remember there was this beautiful little Icelandic baby girl who looked like me. She was brown like me. And so of course that let me know that mm, somebody had been dipping in the, the cookie jar <laughs> there a little bit. Um, <laughs> but you could tell she was really puzzled because she had never seen a woman that looked like her because her mom, of course, was blonde and blue-eyed. Uh, they're very purist uh, country, culturally. Uh, just a different mindset. So yeah, there were some definite things that did arise that made me really begin to understand the whole idea of race uh, and the differences in how people see us wow. as a culture, as a culture. And there's two things I wanna come back to that you just said earlier. One was in the class in, in San Antonio, being, were you the only female in that class of only three African-Americans? Yes. Okay, so did they, uh, everyone else was male, male, white or black? Yes. And so did they, uh, what did they think about? Like, did they ask you, what are you doing here? Why are you, yeah. why are you doing this? Yeah, because back then it was interesting. There, we didn't even have, um, when I think of what was the first female chief master sergeant of the Air Force was appointed probably back in 1983, I think it was. So before that, you know, most women that even went into the military um, did not stay past, say, the grade of E4 or E5. So when you think even from the, the female standpoint, it was, uh, they were like, so what made you decide to come into the military? And then where are you from? You know, and I grew up in Ohio. And I was like, well, you know, my dad was military. Um, I just thought this was a great opportunity. I love to travel. I wanted to see the world. So why not? Was there a stigma attached to that? Did they think you weren't good enough or you weren't going to be able to do the job the same right. as the man? 
Oh, absolutely. So that's, that's the other part too. Uh, there were positions that they made it a lot more challenging for me to qualify to attain uh, as I attained. Oh, my intentionally. So your superiors did this. Because mm -hmm. wow. it, it was a very good old boy system. Mm. Not only was it, not only had it to do with race, but it also had to do with, I was a girl. Yeah. <laughs> and I, I didn't fit, you know, I, I put my pants on differently. I mean, I can even remember work because I did a lot of shift work. I did a lot of crew work at the time. Um, and I would be like, especially on nights, which I preferred to work, um, I might've be the only female on shift at that time. And you know, and it's really, it, it's a different world. The military is, it's gotten much better but back then it really was the good old boy system and they looked out for each other. Men looked out for each other. And that made me just think of something. Is that why there's more women are assaulted, sexually assaulted in the military because it's such a good old boy system? Yes. And that's why stuff is put under the cover. Like they, and now finally, I think the air force was one of the first ones that came about, you know, hasn't been, it's been within the last 10 years because they don't want anybody to get in trouble. You know, they don't want, they're like, oh, I'll take care of you. I've, I've seen a lot of different things. And that was one of the reasons why when it was time for me to retire, I didn't want to stay any longer. I was done. I was tired of, I was tired of the um, bureaucratic system to include that, the still the male dominance that did exist at that time, you know. So when I was in the military, it was in the 80s and the 90s. And that's when a lot of shifts happened, especially for women, you know, the first female pilots came about, you know, that actually could fight in combat. Um, we had uh, the first female chief master sergeant in the Air Force was appointed while I was active duty. You know, so I'm, again, and that, that's only been not that long ago when you think about it. It's been within the last 40 years. You had also mentioned now you have, you're growing your hair out and you have tattoos, but I also read that um, women were not allowed to have their, um, their hair in a certain way. Oh yeah, no. This was banned. Military banned certain hairstyles that were favored by black women. I mean, yes. I read all these insane facts that black women currently represent nearly a third of all women in the armed forces. Yet, their tr the treatment of black women is always vastly different. It is to not just men but white women. You know, holding lower ranks, getting paid less, uh, having to work harder, as you said. Uh, yeah. and, and then when it comes to retiring, not getting care, the, the same payouts yeah. or care as, as other people who yeah. served. It had a lot to do with, the good thing is, the latter part of my career, the last 10 years, I, I, was, I had amazing, I'll honestly say amazing supervisors. Super, uh, I worked for a full bird colonel. I worked for two two-star generals that really uh, allowed me to kind of shine. Um, and I really did move into areas where I had a lot more control in my career. So it was up to me to make the choices that I did. Um, but I will say that there was, I, would, I couldn't have, when I was in, you couldn't, I couldn't wear uh, sister locks. Um, you couldn't get your hair, like, which is better for our hair, because it's, you know, we're not doing so much to it. As a matter of fact, and my mother had a cow when I did this. I had long, long, long hair, okay, when I first went in. It was down in the middle of my back. A lot of care, though. Um, so I actually cut my hair, like, short. My mother had a cow. But it was because it was just easier for me to take care of because I literally had to put it up every day, and I'd have to pull it back in a ball. And that was a part of military structure. But we couldn't, I couldn't wear braids. I couldn't wear the things that helped my hair be healthy. I had to flat iron or press it or get a relaxer or do those things um, because it, I had to look a certain way. 
we have to assimilate and be yeah you have to conform yes very 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 much so and and it did depend on the jobs too um it's interesting because i worked in a job that i did require tsi ssi which is a really high security clearance to get that was like hmm, it's like having a baby i mean i mean really like it took forever um there were a lot you had to get endorsements and and different things like that and the process itself not i won't say it was humiliating but it was just like wow you know how come sally hers was approved within five months mine took like 18 months to get it approved which limited what i was able to do from a job perspective and it also affected my progression rank wise so um yeah so it was interesting it was very interesting it wasn't bad but it wasn't amazing either it is different retiring from military as a woman it's so funny i just uh, made sure uh, i've always had a veteran tag but now they have a woman veteran and i got a tag for my car that says woman veteran and it's how many how interesting so many people have stopped me and said oh wow that's thank you for your service you know because it says woman and this guy was like he said i would have loved to serve with you you know i'm like oh yeah whatever but you know what i'm saying but still it, it was it's interesting there is a whole different connotation you know when i first went into women that went into the military weren't looked at the same way you know um and then of course when i retired it was a it was a lot different so it was nice there were there were drawbacks though you have you've got three daughters right i do do you mm-hmm. have you shared stories with them have any of them expressed an interest to be in the navy or the military or the air force and if they have what what did you say it's so funny. My oldest definitely no. My middle actually she didn't. She is a she's a PICU nurse now, an RN. She works in a, at UC Davis in Sacramento, and she actually did look into it because um, it was her. Fa- it was my older daughter's father who's deceased, and so um, and he was active duty as well. And so she actually did look into it, and she says, "What do you think, Mom?" And I was like. Mm-hmm. I said, is there a reason why you want to go <laughs> to the military? She said, well, I just thought, you know, I, I think I would fit really well. And I was like, I said, if you stay, and at the time she was truly trying to determine what field she would want to be. I said, if you stay in the, the medical field, you'll be okay. Because um, it, it, it does set you up for a very broad career. And it, I think if you in the military, if you go into the medical career, that sets you up to be a lot more successful in the civilian world because you have to be very, very adaptable, right? So she almost did. And then I kind of said, meh. And I'm so glad I did because she's really happy where she is right now. So yeah, my baby, there's no way. She just graduated from high school. She is such a rebel. So that brings me back to, now you mentioned your first husband. Did you meet him while you were an active yeah, service? Okay. And so what happened with your relationship there? Is, you know, he was a civil engineer and I was in air defense. So completely different career paths, completely. It was interesting. We met, we weren't, weren't stationed in the same base. I met because I went to go visit a friend that was at his base. And then we had a long distance uh, relationship, actually. Um, we met like in July. Um, it was pretty fast. Like we met in July, we got engaged in November and we were married in February. 
And here's why, though, because within that time, he got an assignment. And that's kind of like the military life. He got an assignment. He was going remote to Comiso uh, Air Station, Sicily. Um, and he left. We got married February the 17th. He left on March the 12th. And so we got married, and that's how we started our, our marriage, which I don't regret anything. Um, we were madly in love. And, um, and I think our the separation, which for some people doesn't work, for us, it made us love. I still have all his love letters. I still have all his letters that I'm holding on so my daughters can have them, you know. It was a beautiful courtship. It was a beautiful wedding, marriage, wedding. Um, yeah, so it was, it was good. And we, we ended up, um, we were only separated that one year. And then after that, he came back. And then we actually moved to Europe together. Um, and then I was the one that was always gone back and forth until, um, until he passed away. So, you know. And a, are you comfortable talking about his passing? Because it feels like that was almost the beginning of your, of your yogic journey. It was. Um, yeah, I am. He, um, unfortunately, he was killed in a, a very bad car accident. Um, it was out of, and he was driving our vehicle back home from a, a, a NCO Academy graduation. One of his coworkers had graduated. Sadly, four people in my vehicle out of five passed away, my husband included. Um, yeah, it's, you know, but, but, with all things, just like as we know in our yogic path, right? From that passing of him, his body dropping and leaving, it bloomed where I am today. I, I know, not, I think I would have been in this path at some, to some extent, but nothing to content, because my life would have been different, you know, it would have been different. So he died uh, in, uh, on July 11th. I was just thinking about that this morning, July 11th, 1997. But he's always with me, you know, and that changed. It did change my life. It was devastating. Uh, I kind of call it. I went to the dark side for a while, where I wasn't making good choices as far as taking care of my body and things like that. But I think we all grieve differently. We all move through that grief differently. Mm -hmm. So I did do that, and then I stumbled. And we were both into fitness, um, so it was funny. Right before he passed, I had started. We were getting ready to try and have another baby. So, you know, we started working out together. I'd started playing a little bit with yoga, but the movement, the asana aspect. Um, and then I found, after he passed, I found that I needed, I knew I needed something because, of course, during my really first stages of grieving, I was medicated quite a bit um, to deal with uh, my depression. But then I was like, I can't function like this. Like, I, I don't do well anyway on any kind of opioids or I don't, do, I just don't do well. And so I was like, okay, I got to do something else. So um, I stumbled across a yoga class and um, that was when it began. And once I, I was like something, there's something different about this yeah. that I need in my life. And I took my first teacher training back in 2000. And ever since, I've just been rolling. And I met Anand in 2007. And the rest is history. The rest is really history. It's just well, had, were you already out? Had you, had you retired from the Air Force at that point when you were looking at, at starting changing your life at the time of your I, husband's passing? 
Well, so when he passed, I had no desire to stay in because I, at that time, I had two children that I had to be responsible for. Um, and so I retired October the 1st, officially 2000. And uh, I did my teacher training in April of 2000. So it was interesting, like as I was, I was moving through a lot of different space. I was healing, you know, and figuring out me. And I really didn't know what I wanted to do. I knew I didn't want to work corporate. And, you know, there were a lot of things that I was trying to figure out. But that is where it literally blossomed. And it was as I was retiring, I moved into that yogic or that fitness path, you know? Yeah. And, and so helping people... Uh, I guess, other survivors of, of spouse, deceased spouses from the military is a really beautiful thing. Because people, as you said, with your own experience, being medicated can be really d difficult, right? It can cloud our judgment with so many things. And you're already in a place where you're emotionally broken. And so something like yoga is such an incredible tool for people. If they're open to it, you know, and ready to come and experience that. Yeah. So talk, I'd love for you to share this. How, what was that realization? You knew obviously it worked for you. And yeah. how can people find you and experience? Has it been word of mouth? You just, obviously you're still plugged into the, the military yeah. scene. You know, people yeah. know you. It was interesting. Um, I uh, am a teacher trainer for uh, a company and I was out doing teacher trainings. This woman came to me who started this foundation and she was in my training. And she, we were talking, we were, I was sharing and it just came out, you know, because of yoga and, you know, when we talk about a parigraha, being able to let go. And I shared my story, you know, about the loss of my husband and all that. And she, and light bulbs came up. So she and her husband are both active duty military who started this nonprofit and it's called Survivors of Heroes. Mm. And they, she said, I, I need you. I want you. And I was like, and, and I've helped, you know, other women along the way. There were certain things that I was given initially that whenever I know someone, I give them, I send them certain books that really helped me. And then I give them a breath practice, which really helped. You know what I mean? There's yeah. little things along the way. So now they do an amazing retreats that are fully paid for, for these surviving spouses. And I go facilitate. Oh, and that's it's a, beautiful. It's this, there's this beautiful place up in Detroit Lakes, Minnesota, right? It's absolutely gorgeous. And I go and they host at least three a year, but it's a complete nonprofit, which I can totally send you the information if you'd love, because it's, everything is done by donation. They've established it um, because, uh, unfortunately, they weren't able to have children. Their baby is this place in Detroit Lakes, Minnesota which is breathtaking. So what they, their intention is three times a year. Um, they, they completely pay for up to 15 women and their children. Oh. Yeah, because there's a camp that they've established close by. Oh, so that the mom, exactly, can come. And dads, so it's mm -hmm. surviving spouses, right? Yeah. And so, and I go there and I facilitate for them and I teach them healing things, the things that I know worked for me. They always say, they say, we know that we can do this now. They know that they can survive, which is, yeah, you're going to make me cry. Oh, you've already made me cry. Oh, it's so beautiful. It yeah. is beautiful because yeah. they're, you know, the loss of a spouse is such a, you know, when, you, when you're with someone and you choose that partner, I, I look at the relationship you have with your, your honey. 
And I never, I told, I've said this for years, I never wish that on anyone. I don't care if they were my enemy because it's, it's such a devastating loss. Yeah. But, but there is life. There is yeah. life after. And I do believe that it, there, it needs to be that yogic path, that spiritual path of being secure and knowing that we have the ability to heal thyself and it comes from within. It doesn't have to be from external sources of, you know, like we were saying, drugs, um, which is sadly what most people default to because it's about cloaking it, not moving. We have to move through it. There were days. There were days I could tell. I could share all kinds of stories. Oh yeah. You know, I couldn't get out of my bed. There were, but gosh, look at now. You know, I take people to India every year. I I have the ability to help people heal in different ways that, um, yeah, so I know that's my dharma. I know that I experienced that, I experienced that loss so that I could be right here, right now, living my yoga. That's why, that's how I came up with Live Your Yoga. I love that. I love that. And that's your studio in Atlanta. And you recently during COVID had a really beautiful experience with the studio as well. And oh, are you okay sharing that? I mean, these times this year have been so hard for so many people, but as you know, with our practice, but this is why it's a practice. It's why we do where we have these life tools. So in really tough times, we understand we don't just stay in the corner and cry or go drink or take, take drugs or whatever. We can actually experience those moments. And it's not about checking out. Yoga is not a practice that's about checking out and blocking and being airy fairy and going, Oh, it's going to be fine. Yeah. Yeah. Whatever. Cause so many people think that, right. They go, Oh right. yeah. But when your practice has evolved to that place where you're so like, we're in tune, we understand, okay, it hurts. Sucks. Like yeah. things can be shitty and it's okay. Yeah. It doesn't mean it's it an end. Yeah. You know, and I just think I, I was so moved by the yoga community that, that came together during that, your experience. I know. And that's the thing, like one of the hardest things, and this is where when we talked before, being a being a black female, being a retired military veteran, being all the experiences like I've shared some of mine with you right now it's hard to ask for help. It's hard to humble yourself to know, damn it, I need help. Like, and I did, I did a GoFundMe because uh, I've had my studio be three years on the 1st of September and it's being in COVID, man, it, it hurt. Like financially for me, I was moving, pulling money from my resources. Yeah. Um, to maintain the, the, the studio and, uh, because I know deep inside that my studio is supposed to survive. Like, so I did, I sat and it took me probably like two weeks. I sat, you know, and I went into the GoFundMe thing and I typed out my thing and it just kind of sat there. And every day I was looking at it on my computer. And finally, during meditation one morning, I pulled a card because I do cards and I pulled a card and it said, the universe is awaiting you. you." And I was like, okay, so I, I hit the, send button well based upon that um and the conversation with um uh anon my teacher um he was like send me i want them to know you because they need to know you he's known me for several several years and uh, uh yeah 
I got it. We raised the money within two and a half days. I know. I hit the goal and then some. And, and, and talk about feeling supported, right? It was such an amazing thing because I um, felt solid in, in doing exactly what I needed to do. And also in allowing me to know that I am supported, like more so than anything else that felt the community, that Sangha, there were people in our Sangha because of the location, as you know, because you've been the Sapa, that I've never met. They stood up, man. They, they donated. And because of that, you know, Live Your Yoga will thrive, is thriving and will continue to thrive. And I consider Live Your Yoga the Sattva Center of the U.S., mm. you know, because that's the support that I've received globally from the collective itself, which was so supporting. And that's what I do think right now when we think of, yeah, stuff is shitty. But you know what? We have each other. And, and knowing you, I mean, think about all the people that you and I've met together and then not together and mm -hmm. through association. And I think it's such a blessing, a blessing because we are all connected. We are the, the micro of the macro. Mm -hmm. And so if we're here to support each other, even when it's cry time, right? Even and when it's yay time as well. Yeah. So it's about knowing we're supported through all aspects. Thank you for, for sharing that story. It's really beautiful. There's um, a lot of people uh, feel shame and are embarrassed because of their ego of putting themselves out there and letting people know I need help or just telling the truth, explaining, you know, what's happened uh, in their lives during this. And the practice of yoga can really help people trust and open up to that compassion that resides in all of us. Yes, it does. Because one of the beautiful things that I found through the sattva practice in particular, um, as I've grown personally, is that it, it removes the barriers. Yeah. It allows you to go deeper. It allows you to be and remove that ego and let ego sit over there. Like, okay, you stay over there. I'm not going to mess with you. You don't mess with me and really sit and be comfortable with, with where we need to be because through that, through those roots or that pain, like we always talk about the Lotus, right? Mm -hmm. So through that darkness comes the light. Yeah. And, we, and we have to be able to move through that because then that really allows us to blossom into the beautiful flowers that each of us are. My thing is really about being that conduit of change or being that, be the change. And that's the best thing I think we can do. Mm -hmm. I agree. Thank you. And, yeah. But you're taking your practice now to another level and you've added on Joy Tish training. Talk a little bit about that. <laughs> what is oh my God. And I know that's a separate conversation because it's really long and can really go on about, you know, so many other things, right? I'll make it quick. Mm. So when we think, I think of everything in trinities, right? So if we understand the Ishtas, there's Brahma, Vishnu, and Shiva, right? Um, if we think um, from a religious standpoint, there's um, uh, the Holy Ghost, Jesus, and God, right? That mm -hmm. makes that Holy Trinity. So this is, I think, the yogic trinity. It's yoga, Ayurveda, mm -hmm. and Jyotish. And so Jyotish actually means science of life. Ayurveda is life knowledge or the science of life. 
And then of course, yoga is self-realization or um, the science of realization. So Jyotish as a whole though fits and it supports um, your path uh, because it's, it's all planetarily based. It's a very fixed astrology, it's Vedic astrology, but it's, there's nothing like it because it's like taking a snapshot of you when you were born, the time you were born, and then you took your first breath and where. Your chart is going to be completely different from anyone else because nobody was in the exact same place as you at that time when you took your first breath. So it's a beautiful mapping with, um, and a guideline, I think, uh, energetically and um, for us to be able to, to move through our life. And if we connect with that wholly, it'll change your life. I mean, I, I did my first chart. I did had my first reading when I was uh, in 2007. Changed my life. Mm. It's cathartic at first, but then once you understand it, then it's like, okay, I get it now. And yeah. things start just revealing themselves. So that's the abridged version. <laughs> yes. Yeah, I know. It's very involved. I mean, there's so many other questions. Okay. Well, I'm going to stop there because otherwise it'll just end up being another five hours. <laughs> You need probably another five years actually to fully talk about it. Yeah, totally. <laughs> but so, is there anything else you'd like to share? And I would love for you to also mention your website at where people can find you. The only thing I would like to finish this with is uh, first that, that you're a blessing that you're doing this, and uh, I just I honor your space and your energy. You're such a beautiful soul, and. I know that this is your work. This is how you give back. And I know this is how you're able to, this is a part of your yoga, which is beautiful. Um, Thank you. But then also that, you know, the same thing, like I said before, be the change we wish to wish to see in the world. You know, there's so many struggling now, right now, because of all the different uh, racial issues that are taking place. But know that you have to be able to be uncomfortable to be able to move forward. And unfortunately for my, or fortunately for my white brothers and sisters, it's going to be a little uncomfortable right now. But just know that you have my support. So if you need anything, I'm around. I'm here to support in any way that I can um, because we are a collective. You know, the one, the other part too is if we all pull back this layer of the skin, this top layer, guess what? We all bleed red. We all have hearts, we all have minds, we all feel, breathe, and do the things we need to do to be in this world. So we're here for each other. We just have to work together. Um, my website is liveyouryoga, L-I-V-E-U-R-Y-O-G-A.com. I'm also, on my IG is uh, Tracy of Live Your Yoga. I'm the only one out there. I'm Tracy Jennings Hill. I'm the only one on Facebook that's Tracy Jennings Hill. I'd love to connect with you. I'd love to, I do Ayurvedic stuff. I'm an Ayurvedic coach. So if you're wanting to make some major health changes for yourself to live a more balanced yogic life from a Ayurvedic standpoint, I can coach you there as well. And I'd love to do your chart. So I'd love to do whatever you need for me to do. I'm, I'm, I belong to the world. <laughs> <laughs> oh, that's beautiful. Wonderful. Well, thank you so much, Tracy. It was oh, really, so really beautiful to talk with you. Yeah. Thank you. Thank you. You can find Tracy again at liveyouryoga.com and that's spelled live, L-I-V-E-U-R-Y-O-G-A 
yoga.com. Liveyouryoga.com. Thank you so much. Thank you. Beautiful, beautiful day.